Hello and welcome to Governance Matters, the show where we examine the work of corporate secretaries and general counsel and the latest developments facing the profession. I'm your host, Ben Maiden, Corporate Secretary's Editor-at-Large. Later in this episode, we'll be talking about legal entity management. Now, this may not always make for sexy headlines, but it is core to your company's well-being. And we hear about the award-winning work that was done to bring NASDAQ's entity management program up to date, as well as some of the ways that technology can be an important ally. But we start today by looking at the 2023 proxy season which for the second year in a row has seen falling average levels of support for ESG-related shareholder proposals. Farrington Advisors ESG leader Brian Bueno joins me to share his insights into what's happening behind the numbers. We also talk about executive compensation, which has been facing increased investor scrutiny, while at the same time companies have been getting used to new SEC disclosure requirements. Well, Brian, um, you know, as we speak today, we're not quite at the end of the proxy season yet, um, but there are some signs that investor support for ESG-related proposals uh, is being lower this season, uh, proxy season, which in itself is lower than the year before, as you know. So this has led to some observers suggesting there's some sort of shift away from ESG. Firstly, in response to that, do you have any sort of figures you could um, share that sort of highlights the shift in support this year and, and does it in any way vary between sort of proposals in the ES and the G sort of areas? Yeah, thanks, Ben. So I think, so we definitely follow the uh, prevalence of ESG proposals. Uh, we look at both large cap and the full Russell 3000 companies. And what we have found this year is that even though the total number of proposals that are actually uh, on the ballot has been roughly consistent year over year, um, what we are seeing is a big decrease in support rates. Uh, so if we look at just the ESG proposals that have gained majority support this past proxy season, that's uh, down from, it was still, it was already low, but down from about 11% last year to 2% this year. So uh, we were already seeing a de- decrease, as you mentioned. Last year was also a decrease from about 20% um, getting majority support the prior year. We are seeing some differences between environmental and social in particular. So while last year, about 20% of the environmental-related uh shareholder proposals that had uh, reached ballots last year, about 20% of those had actually gained majority support. This year, that's way down to about 3%. Similarly, social proposals, anything sort of workforce related, et cetera, that was already kind of low. It's about 8% majority support last year, and that's down 2% this year. And even if we look at um, median support rates, not just the ones that are passing, but what's the actual median support rates, those are down across the board um, from median of 30% last year to about 25% this year. Oh, well, that's quite significant. Um, I think that's even that seems even steep compared to the previous year's drop. So uh, the obvious question being is, why is this happening? What's behind the figures? I think, you know, there was some discussion of this this last year. And, some, and I think some of the, the, the ideas might be some of the trends might be similar this year. But what, you're, you're the expert. What do you what do you think is going on here behind behind the actual voting itself? Yes, I think there are a combination of issues that are working together to kind of bring these the support rates down. One was a continuation of something that had happened last year, which was we saw a big increase in the actual number of proposals that could actually get to the proxy ballot and get to voting. Um, And that was due to a change in an SEC rule, SEC Rule 14.8, what it's called. Uh, So it was a change in that in 2022. So now that made it harder for companies to actually dismiss certain types of proposals. So things that maybe in a prior year were dismissed because uh, it was an issue that maybe the company has already addressed 
or it was a proposal that had already been on a prior prior proxy ballot in prior years and had been dismissed by by shareholders. It made it harder for companies to actually dismiss a lot of those that were in in, in fact ESG related. So we're seeing a lot we, we were seeing a lot more ESG proposals on the ballot last year. We're seeing that again this year, but the quality of those proposals is actually lessened because um, right shareholders have already voted it down. The company might have already been doing something about it. The other thing that I think uh, we're seeing is some of these proposals are getting increasingly prescriptive, whereas in prior years, a lot of these proposals were relating to requesting companies to disclose information like disclose an ESG report, disclose a diversity report, disclose any emissions targets. Um, a lot of companies have already done that. We've seen that the companies have either reacted to um, some of these proposals or they have already proactively disclosed information because they're adhering to um, ESG standards or they're, or they're listening to their shareholders through, through shareholder engagement discussions. So we're seeing sort of this next stage of ESG proposals where instead of companies being asked to just disclose more information for the benefit of shareholders, they're being asked to actually do something about it, to actually um, commit to uh, reducing emissions by X percent by, by a certain year or... In the case of one, one of our clients, actually, um, they had a shareholder proposal where they were being asked to incorporate a climate metric into their incentive plan, into their uh, executive compensation incentive plan. We know a lot of companies are already doing this proactively, but a proposal that actually gets on the ballot that's asking a company to um, take a certain type of action, we have found that those generally garner less support than ones that are really just disclosing or requesting for the company to disclose more information. Is it possible that some some of the issues being addressed in um, proposals are, are slightly more esoteric than they maybe have been in the past, or where where you've had like you know a broad agreement around say diversity or a broad agreement around climate change as being fundamental issues to companies that maybe are, are, are sort of proponents looking at areas that maybe are seen as less core to the to the business in a way. The, propo- the proponents would say otherwise, of course, but like I mean, with the, the, some investors might think a less sort of key, uh, less key. Yeah, I, th- I think um, when we look at the proposals that actually do gain more support or that or that have actually gained majority support, um, you often see that there's there is more of a, a linkage to sort of the operations of that company. Um, um, I think shareholders see the broader benefit, not just for. Um, maybe the stakeholder group that's being addressed, but they actually see a link to, all right, if, if I support this proposal, it's going to benefit the company, it's going to benefit me as a shareholder as well. Now, of course, as you know, we've seen um, an increase in sort of uh, so-called anti-ESG proposals. There was a sharp uptick in those last year, I think that, you know, which sort of features in part as part of this broader anti-ESG push in in, in the U.S., but at least from the initial figures that I saw earlier um, in the season, there seemed to be a similar number of, of anti-ESG proposals being filed this year. I don't know if that ended up being correct or what the kind of levels of support they were getting. Because, I mean, I know last year they got pretty low levels of support, um, even in cases where they were uh, the resolution was phrased uh, not dissimilarly to, <laughs> to a pro-ESG resolution uh, for various reasons that we don't need to get into here. But like, how, how have they fared so far this year? Yeah, I, I, I think well, I guess one note before I get into the statistics is that sometimes um, it can be hard to uh, discern whether a proposal is pro-ESG or anti-ESG. Sometimes they use, they use a lot of the same language. You really have to get into um, 
the explanation for the proposal to understand what's really going on. That, that's when it, that's when it usually becomes pretty clear at some point. <laughs> yeah, um... exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so far, what we've seen is an increase in anti-ESG proposals this year in that there have been a, a total of 74 that we've seen submitted. And the, but then in terms of actual support rates, the ones that actually then get voted on, um, as as you mentioned, the, the, the rates are actually lower than regular ESG proposals than we've seen the support, the median support rate for anti-ESG proposals be about two to 3%. And that's compared to median support rates of um, sort of the regular ESG proposals of about 25 to 30, as we mentioned earlier. Um, so the support rates are nowhere near where they are for the regular ESG proposals. A lot of them we see have to do with uh, some of the social issues, racial equity audits, et cetera, where these proponents or the anti-ESG proponents um, are, are often uh, you know, asking companies to conduct a racial equity audit because they think uh, DEI policies, for example, are sort of not beneficial to the company or not beneficial to uh, society. Um, so, so that's where we're seeing um, the stats so far. I don't really know of any anti-ESG proposals that have gained majority support at any, at any point in the past few years. There are some that I think um, some might consider either anti-ESG or, or it's not really clear where, where the proposal was asking the company to produce. Um, there were a few, there have been many of these uh, where they're asking the company to disclose information on their practices relating to labor in China. So if the company has operations in China or does business with China, there are certain, certain proposals that request the company to produce a human rights report um, relating to that. So sometimes that comes from that sometimes those come from groups that have historically submitted anti-ESG proposals for other topics at companies. Um, but I, I don't necessarily consider those uh, to be anti-ESG within themselves. Sure. Stepping away from the shareholder proposals precisely, but executive comp um, was something, I think something you and I have spoken about, that was expected to sort of face, uh, be very much in the spotlight this year for a number of reasons. I think partly because of the economic conditions coming out of the, uh, the pandemic and so forth and so forth. And there have been some suggestions, I think, from Variant that, that some of the say on pay support has it's trended downwards slightly over the last few years, if, I, if I'm understanding the, the, the figures correctly, or at least fewer companies may be getting 90% or above support, something like that. Do you have any sort of, can you share some preliminary data for this year on how say on pay is, is going compared to like previous seasons? Yeah, and so this is actually a pretty interesting uh, question, whereas in prior years, there had been a, a consecutive trend over multiple years in which say on pay support had gone down. We had seen that over multiple years, Gearing up for this proxy season, we were ready to say that again um, as some of our predictions. And as we're looking at the data for this year, and, and, and we've like we've reviewed with colleagues uh, across the industry as well, we're seeing um, actual inc- an increase in the in support rates for say on pay. So the percentage of companies that have received uh, greater than ninety percent support. Uh, so we're not just looking at failures, but greater than ninety percent support had been declining over a while. So it, it was at about 77% in 2020. It got down to 69% last year. And so far this year, we're up about four percentage points where 73% of companies have gotten 90, 90% or greater support. So we're, we're, we've seen an increase. We are still analyzing why this is. I think part of what we were seeing in the past like two or three years was kind of turbulent conditions relating to the pandemic. 
Um, we know a lot of companies got in trouble from their shareholders because during 2020, they maybe modified mid-cycle incentive plans. So incentive plans that right would have paid out at zero were paying out um, at, at certain different levels because companies were modifying how they were measuring performance to um, to exclude the, the impact of the pandemic, um, which for many shareholders didn't make sense, right? It's not... The, the the experience of the shareholder wasn't then being reflected in the, the experience of uh, or in the executive compensation plan. So I think that's part of it. So we saw that and there was a long tail to that, right? There, there was what companies did in 2020, then maybe sometimes some of that some of that extended into 2021. We were still kind of getting out of um, pandemic issues. Um, and then in 2022, was, was just the year that companies are voting on now. I think we're coming out of that. So I think that's part of it. Whereas this is more of a kind of a more normal year that they're reviewing. There aren't as many sort of adjustments to uh, payouts as we were seeing in prior years or weird things that were going on. I think one of the other things that we've noticed is support rates, or I would say against rates from ISS and Glass-Lewis, the big proxy advisors, those are actually down. So the percentage of companies that they were recommending against, say on pay votes for, has dropped from the low teens to the high single digits. So I think we saw the ISS against rate last year was about 13, 14%. And this year it's about eight to 9%. They they may be reacting to a lot of the same issues. So that's a lot of the same issues in terms of performance, in terms of coming out of, of kind of coming out of the pandemic. And then I also, I think 2022, or for many companies in many industries, uh, was a tough year in terms of uh, their financial performance. In sort of stock in terms of um, stock price performance and where they ended up at the end of the year, um, and for I think for most for when you look at the data in aggregate at, at median or at median or, or at average um, annual incentive payouts or the bonus payouts are actually down uh, for for the year when we look at the the S and P five hundred companies. So that's reflect that's. Um, it kind of it shows the ways the way in which companies are reflecting their actual performance, the, the experience of the shareholder in the actual compensation program, and that's something that shareholders shareholders want to see. And it's showing that the um, it's showing that the executive pay program is working the way that it should. I'm sure they'll be delighted to hear. Um, <laughs> now, one of the other sort of features that rolling into this a focus on the executive comp this year was new new SEC rules and particularly the um, new pay versus performance disclosures that uh, uh, governance professionals have been doing a lot of work on to get ready for this proxy season. Have you just observed at this stage any sort of trends in the way companies have gone about complying with with that? And I think there is. As always with the new SEC rule, there is some debate about, you know, um, exactly what the new rule means and exactly how to, to, to implement it. Are there any like different camps? Is everyone doing the same thing um, in terms of this, this particular area? Yeah. Um, so this is something that right, we, we worked with our clients uh, in kind of the end of last year, a lot in the beginning of this year, where there was a new pay definition they had to calculate. Um, a new section of the proxy that they had to add and, and explain. Um, and there was a bit of discretion that at least the SEC that the SEC gave, at least in terms to in terms of uh, how to display this new information. It's kind of a standard table. Everybody kind of does the same thing. But then you have to actually explain the relationship between what they call compensation actually paid, which is a definition of of a pay, and then uh, different measures of performance, and those included TSR 
net income, and then the company could choose a selected measure. And then the SEC allowed companies to essentially explain that relationship either in a narrative format, a graph, or a combination of the two. And so this, that's where we do see some difference, but I think most companies ended up ended up choosing a graph with some narrative. I think where we see some where we see the variation really is more in terms of what companies are choosing for their specific metric, what works best for their industry. So we see, for example, financial services companies um, or banks, for example, choosing a returns metric as a, their measure of performance. But for the most part, I think a lot of companies kind of followed each other in terms of how they're going to structure it. Um, and, and differences that we do see are, are across industries when they when they list the metrics that are most important to their company um, versus not. I think one interesting thing that we saw too is even though a lot of companies use ESG-based measures in their incentive plan, when it came to the question of there's there's a new part to the pay versus performance disclosure where they have to list what are the most important metrics that link to compensation actually paid for the executives, uh, we found only about 13% of companies listed an ESG measure in that list, even though... Um, when we look at the analysis in the rest of the proxy, when companies include or, exp- or include certain metrics in their incentive plan, about 60% of those same companies actually include an ESG measure in, in their incentive mm, plan. Interesting. <laughs> so it was interesting that only that of those, only a, a, a small portion were actually then saying these are our quote unquote most important metrics and would include an ESG measure in there. So oh, I see. So they just they're just giving them a low weighting. Yeah, exactly. They're considering the low weighting in that in that case. Well, I guess we'll see if that changes over time, but I think it'll it'll depend on sort of the the attention this this new disclosure gets from um, investors going forward. Do we have any indication of of whether investors are bothered about this? I've heard one or two governments professionals say, "I put all this work in, and no one seemed to be really care." <laughs> Yeah, I've been, we've been hearing that as well. It was a lot. It was definitely a lot of work to put this new disclosure together. I think I, I, we haven't seen necessarily any uh, major investors make reference to this new section of the disclosure. I, I think what we expect is that when there are issues with a company's compensation program, uh, this new disclosure gives them kind of another tool and another kind of stick to use um, with the company to say, all right, we disagreed with, you know, you granting these grants or we disagreed with your incentive plan design. And and it shows in the way that there's a lack of pay for performance alignment, for example, as evident in the pay versus um, performance disclosure. So I think it gives them something that they can point to to say, right, to to to, to, to augment their argument potentially against the company. Um, I think one thing that I'll be interested in seeing going forward is if proxy advisors, ISS and Glass-Lewis incorporate the any portion of the new PVP disclosure, um, pay versus performance disclosure in their models, right? ISS and Glass-Lewis have their own pay for performance alignment models that they use to assess companies. They grade them and score them on that. And they they develop their say on pay recommendation based on partly based on those models. Um, so I'll be interested to see if they decide to incorporate any portion of it, like like the compensation actually paid values. Um, some might argue that that type of realizable pay valuation is more appropriate for doing a pay for performance alignment assessment, um, more, more appropriate than a grant date value, for example. So um, I think if that were to happen, if ISS or Glasslowis were to incorporate that into their plan for or into their models 
for example, then that would get a lot of attention and that would think drive a lot more more focus on on this part of the disclosure. There's an awful lot to digest in all that. We've covered. Thank you so much for doing that. I mean, just uh, just if I can put you on the spot for finally, like, if are there any uh, any takeaways you take from this the, this proxy so far? If you're if you're a governance professional out there, any any lessons you would learn from that other than uh, keep going with the pay, pay versus performance disclosures? But yeah, I think um, maybe a few things. This season, especially, there were a lot of items to either address immediately, governance items to address, the, the pay for performance disclosure, the the new clawback regulation, and then also a lot of items to watch, things that we know that are coming down, like the new climate disclosure rules by the SEC, potentially new rules on human capital management disclosures. So I think one thing is th- these governance regulations can, then can come about and change quickly. It's imperative to stay on top of them. Um, we know we're working with a more active with more active federal agencies like the SEC. Um, so things can change right month to month. And, and as we mentioned, we're still waiting on some additional things, including, uh, for example, the, the the Federal Trade Commission's non-compete prohibition. So there's a lot of things that are going on that we know we're waiting for, and it's important to stay on top of them. I think another thing, if, if we think about ESG, we know there has been some backlash, but we in the ESG space to you know, pro-ESG uh, issues. Um, but generally, I think we think ESG issues are not going away, whether those are pro or anti ESG. Um, and I think that's evident. And even though we're, even the support rates are down for for the proposals that we were talking about earlier, um, we're still seeing a record number of proposals. Um, and it's likely that some of these groups that are getting sort of lower support rates these years are going to change their strategies going forward as we enter kind of this new phase of the ESG debate. Great. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us and for giving us that fantastic overview of the proxy season. Everyone takes a deep sigh of relief at the end of uh, at the end of the month and uh, hopefully gets a bit of a rest before starting it all over again. But uh, in the meantime, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Mark your calendar and book your all access pass now for Governance Live 2023, our annual festival of corporate governance that features three major events across two days on November the 7th and 8th. Don't miss out, join more than 500 leading governance professionals in New York for the M&A and Activism Forum, the Corporate Secretary Forum and the Corporate Governance Awards 2023. Governance Live 2023 is your one-stop shop to learn from the last 12 months. Celebrate your hard work and prepare for what will come in 2024. Protect and enhance your shareholder values and diverse your governance strategies for next year. The Gala Awards Night is the biggest celebration of governance excellence, achievement and innovation in North America. Visit corporatesecretary.com slash governance live to find out more and to get your discounted early bird all access pass to these three essential events. See you in New York from all of us at Corporate Secretary. And we're back. Thanks again to Brian Bueno. Next up, I spoke recently with Caroline Bootwell, Global Head of Legal Entity Management at NASDAQ, about her work in turning around a program that the company itself has said was ripe for improvements. That work led to Caroline being named Rising Star at last year's Corporate Governance Awards. Uh, Speaking of which, don't forget that we're accepting nominations for this year's awards. A few details of how you can take part, go to corporatesecretary.com slash events. Now, back to the interview. I started by asking Caroline about how to make sure entity management gets the profile it deserves within your company. 
Yes, great question, Ben. Thank you. Internally, I've worked with Erica Moore, NASDAQ's Corporate Secretary, on generating a legal entity management steering committee. This committee includes about one to two stakeholders from critical departments to participate in quarterly meetings um, and email distributions on rationalization projects and other entity management projects. So this ensures visibility, transparency, um, an involvement of tax, treasury, finance, accounting, you know, human resources, legal, and other departments. Um, so we are working also on a quarterly newsletter that's going to launch to a distribution list internally that will provide highlights of upcoming and ongoing projects, recent news in states and countries of which we're located, that will help inform a broader internal audience and raise awareness of our LEM efforts. Okay. So really putting yourselves out there in the company. Yes. So you won uh, our Rising Star Award um, for your work in entity management, but you weren't always in that field. I think something you came to relatively recently before that. Could you sort of sort of share your thinking or any advice you might have for somebody listening who is thinking about getting into, getting into entity management? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I worked in our corporate platforms business for about three years prior to stepping into being the global head of legal entity management. Um, my advice would be to follow just what's most intriguing to you and pursue opportunities that are available within entity management or corporate governance. I think that's a very strong start. Studying entity compliance of your subsidiaries as a first task will be immensely beneficial in further evaluating entity management in your company um, and then being able to identify current risks and any future risk potential. And presumably it wouldn't hurt to talk to someone like you to get your thoughts on, you know, how best to go about it. Right? Of course. <laughs> right. Keep a good network. Absolutely. Um, so when you took over the role of as head of uh, legal entity management at NASDAQ, I think it was June 2020, uh, a fun time to be doing that. I think the company in its, in its own words has said that the, the program was in need a little bit of a touch up. Can you sort of talk us through what some of the challenges were when you sort of first took on the program? And do you think those are kind of, I don't know, I, I feel like there's a lot of commonality among companies in this area and in governance generally. It's, do you think there was some issues that other companies might be having around their entity management programs? Yes. So your timeline's right. I did start in June 2020. Um, and it was a very unique year with the onset of COVID. Um, so we were combating, you know, quite a few different challenges, as I think many were. Um, some of the challenges around legal entity management I first encountered was um, a pretty existing decentralized approach in storing our documents and the statutory records. Uh, we had many vendors in different countries and we didn't have a, a strong access to a specific technology for entity management. Um, these challenges took some time for organizing, listening to our stakeholders' feedbacks, um, introducing a new plan and system across the company, budgeting and evaluating the best source of technology for our needs, and I think that many companies have those similar issues uh, in terms of their entity management programs. It's been recently encouraged and supported through corporate governance matters, you know, internally at NASDAQ, but I think in the broader sense as a part of good corporate governance as well. Mm -hmm. And I think like in, in, in other areas of governance work, operating through sort of pandemic restrictions probably encourage you or should, certainly some companies to take up um, new uses of technology quicker than they may have done otherwise. 
Yes, I agree. I agree. Um, I think the the onset and that push for technologies with legal entity management, um, you know, board portals as a separate matter, a few different technologies related to corporate governance, I think really took off. Yeah. And you sort of touched on this a bit earlier, but when you sort of took on the role, um, you sort of went on a listening tour and, and sort of engaged with a lot of the stakeholders around this. What sort of feedback did you get and, and what were some of the um, improvements that you sort of were able to introduce as a result of, of, of getting that feedback? Yeah. So our corporate secretary and I, we did go around asking our colleagues that have been previously involved with the subsidiaries, you know, what is working and what is not working. Some of the feedback we received was um, around the lack of technology, actually, and the lack of vendors or an expensive vendor for secretarial services. We had a lot of questions regarding, um, you know, best contacts in tax, treasury, accounting, finance, just internal departments on rationalization opportunities for some countries. Some key improvements we implemented was around the procurement of our global entity management software, consolidating those external vendors, rationalizing several entities and beginning with, you know, kind of the low hanging fruit there, creating a steering committee of internal stakeholders and just general upkeep and maintenance on the director and officer appointments as needed. Mm-hmm. Is it? I mean, it's obviously depending on the size of a company's network of entities, keeping tabs on those directors and officers at the, the different entities can be, I imagine, quite quite a challenge. I mean, any thoughts on how you you can sort of make sure that no nothing's slipping through the cracks, if you see what I mean, when it comes to you know the number of individuals who might be out in a, a an unfamiliar jurisdiction or in you know in, in facing their own sort of personal sort of challenges. Sure. The management of the directors and officer appointments was quite tedious. I think it probably took the most time. But overall, we did a a very good evaluation beginning with who is within those jurisdictions. Because some countries, you know, as you know, require local director or a primary representative. And I think that that was the most important piece that we looked at first to make sure we were in compliance with those directors being appointed. And then from there, making sure that we were aligned with the, um, you know, the bylaws and the agreements of the entities. And then we went from there in terms of going around to these directors and validating their appointments with them, talking them through any kind of questions they may had, updating them on anything new that has been going on with current laws or regulations that they might need to be aware about. And uh, and we just went from there. And, and rationalization is... Um... Something that I know that you've 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 been able to do rationalizing the number of entities, and it's obviously something that entity management um, leaders are very you know pleased to have done for you know for any number of reasons, um, helping sort of um, simplify the corporate structure. Are there any situations where it's it, it pays to be cautious about that, to where it's you need to be aware not to be over rationalizing, if that if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I think, yes, that's an important piece to know and to understand for your company what's best suited in terms of how many subsidiaries are perhaps even required to have as a minimum. And then as a maximum, you know, what is controllable for your group? Uh, You don't kind of want to be overboard, I suppose, with the amount of subsidiaries, especially if you come into a point where you can recognize dormant subsidiaries. Um, Those would be good opportunities to take them as a first step of evaluating with your internal stakeholders, is this rational potential or repurpose potential, perhaps, you know, something, what can you do? Because there is a cost in maintaining these entities from a tax perspective, certainly. And then a regulatory 
aspect, it, should it be a regulatory entity. And in uh, time, I mean, it does it does take a lot of time. It takes a lot of paperwork. So if you do have a variety of entities you can pick from that are noticeably dormant, that might be a good starting point. Mm-hmm. Okay. And well, we've mentioned technology a couple of times, um, and that's something that you know I think you felt you were lacking somewhat. You know, when you when you took over the role and you've introduced since. I mean, just generally. Where can technology best be sort of deployed within an entity management program, and how important is it for someone like yourself to have like a tech background, or someone like me who has no idea what they do with technology? <laughs> uh, is it something that one can pick up as as you go along, or does it do you need to have that kind of that sort of training? So I think you can pick it up as you go along. I do not have a tech background by any means, um, but I think technology is a critical point to the success of an entity management program. Most of the software is very intuitive. So, you know, please don't stress if there is no tech background on your resume. That's totally fine. I think they can be best deployed at any time. If you're transitioning from an antiquated system to a new system, or if you're moving from a paper statutory record to a software, you know, I don't think there's a perfect time, but it will save time in the long run on many entity management projects. Right. And, and obviously, one of the, the aspects of uh, entity management is it's global in nature, or can often be global in nature. Um, and that involves sort of staying up to date on various regulatory twists and turns across, you know, a number of different jurisdictions. Um, is that something that is worth leaving to like local council to help with? Or is that something that you follow from like some sort of centralized database that you have at the company? How does, how does that work? Yeah. So I think being able to just kind of tap into the broader corporate governance network is pretty essential to staying on top of regulatory changes and industry trends. For me, you know, I know that that looks like having ongoing conversations with our vendors and being able to connect with peers through the Society of Corporate Governance events, conferences, regularly keeping up with industry media. I know that you know as well, I'm a, currently a doctoral candidate and research in the field of corporate governance, where I find myself researching in scholarly journals on corporate governance and entity management topics pretty frequently. It's important to maintain a connection between academia and practicum. I think many find them to be separate concepts, but I find understanding academia research in the use of my practice is far more efficient you know, in learning about trends and issues. That's very interesting. I mean, I guess the only thing is with, with academic research is that it's not always like bang up to date with what's happening right today exactly but i suppose like the 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 broader implications of it and the analysis is is what's what's particularly helpful i would imagine yes yes the meta analysis is very helpful you're able to build um foreseeable trends from this as well it might not be up to date in terms of you know research within the last year or two but within the last 5 years i would say still holds pretty relevant in terms of where this researcher is taking their work. Well, just lastly, really, I guess, I mean, I know these things don't necessarily evolve at the speed of light, but I mean, in terms of this year particularly, are there any particular, uh, whether it be regulatory changes or just broader issues that, that that you're sort of keeping an eye on, whether it's in the US or somewhere else around the world, just in terms of advice to others in your position, really, as to what sort of um, issues they should be um, keeping an eye on? Yeah, interesting question. I would say... 
You know, along the lines of furthering our evolution and our legal entity management practices and to improve the transparency, trying to increase different department, you know, agreements and buy-ins. Um, I think that those are all very important and it's important to stay on top of those key pieces to really make the legal entity management process, you know, go round. I think I would advise our peers to keep a close watch on you know, new or changing regulations in Europe, um, Asia Pacific regions. I think that those are typically ever changing and to maintain discussions on risk mitigation and compliance efforts, especially through the use of a compliance calendar, that would be essential. Great. Well, thank you for the advice. I'm sure it's much appreciated. Caroline, thank you so much for being with us today. Of course, it's my pleasure. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Governance Matters podcast with me, Ben Maiden. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to like, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.